Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Mission Possible. As Christians, we are called to be on mission, longing and working to see God known and worshipped by people from every culture, from our own city to the ends of the earth. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 2. And we're going to unpack Psalm 2, and then we're going to unpack a little bit more um, through the rest of Scripture to look at our focus this morning is the goal of mission, which is a church for every people group. And what I'd like to um, what I'd like us to see this morning is that God has installed His one Son on the throne as King. His one His one Son is worthy of receiving worship from all mankind, and because of that. While there is one church made up of many people groups that are distinct, they're not divisible. And we have the privilege of worshiping Christ together. Would you stand and read with me Psalm chapter 2? Uh, Bobby Bell has graciously agreed to do the reading for me, so uh, this is my Morgan Freeman right here. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can be Flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You can be seated. Father, we come before your throne this morning. Your son has been heralded to us in your word. Your Holy Spirit has come to give us illumination, to lead us into all truth, to comfort us and to prepare us for the work that you've called us to. And Father, as we as a body and as a group of individuals come together this morning, it's with the understanding that you have called us together to be a part of your mission. And Father, we're here this morning to hear from your word, to be led by your spirit and to be equipped to go out and to accomplish the mission that you have called us to in connection with yours this morning. So Father, I ask that you would be here by your Holy Spirit that you would open your word to us, that we might understand your heart, your purpose for missions, and your desire to see your son's name exalted above every other name, that we, Father, might take part in that great worship service, that we might be changed by it, that our lives would be affected by it, that we would have the fragrance of those who worship the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, point number one, 
the heart of missions is worship, right? Brett talked about this the first week. Everything that we do in Christianity, everything that God has done throughout history has been pointed to this one end. Christ receives worship. To God be the glory. That, that's kind of the, the tagline for the Christian life. To God be the glory. Everything that God has done has that refrain. We have the first catechism question in our, catechi- our catechism, why did God create humans? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We took that from the Westminster Catechism. They got it from looking at Scripture and saying, why did God do all these things? And the answer is, to God be the glory. What God has done has, to, has been to set his son on a throne so that we all will worship him. And God's not a respecter of persons in this way. He doesn't look at you and say, well, if you feel like worshiping my son or if he fits with your values, come and worship my son. He says, my son's king, worship. And everything I've done, everything I will do is to that end that you would worship my son. Praise the Lord, I can open my iPad. So we have, uh, jumping right into Psalm 2, we're going to unpack Psalm 2 just a little bit, going sort of verse by verse here. The first point here that I've got that hopefully is on the screens there is I have installed my king. I'll catch up with us in just a second. There we go. Okay. Bless you, Lord, for your grace. I have installed my king. We see this in verse number four. The one enthroned on high says this, I have installed my king on my hill the holy hill, Zion. God says, I've done this. My son has been installed on my holy hill, set apart, he's the king. And he says, my son is king over all. We see this in verse 7 and verse 8. He says this, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations of inheritance. I will give you the ends of the earth, and you will rule them with an iron rod. You will crush them. You will destroy them like pottery. What's he saying here? He's saying here, my son is the man. Because I set my son on this throne, if he asks me for anything, I'm going to give it to him, and that includes everything I've created. And it's not just that it's going to be his, and I'm going to say, you know, be careful with it. It is his. Once I put it in his hands, He will have full authority over everything. That iron rod that he rules it with is to beat it. That's showing ultimate strength. You will crush it on the ground like pottery. If you want to do that, it's yours to do it with because you're the one that calls the shots. And so God's saying here, my son is king. Everyone must obey him. And so we have then, we turn and we see the response of humanity. And this response can be boiled down in two things, allegiance or rebellion. We see rebellion first in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Why do the nations plot a vain thing? Why do they rage in vain? The kings of the earth, the rulers, they gather together. They say, let us throw off the yoke of God. Let us do our own thing. Interestingly enough, the only time that these kings come together over a common purpose is to throw off God's cords. The only thing that drives humanity together is fighting against the Almighty. 
Verse 5. Then the Lord laughs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He scoffs at them. Why does he do that? Why does God scoff at these kings? Isn't that not nice of him? Isn't that sort of bullying? I have installed my king. Period. Did you not understand that? I set him there. Your rebelling against me is rebelling against him. Why am I angry? I set him there. He's the king. There's no kings throwing off cords of authority here. All there is is rebellion. And then we see on the flip side of that, we see allegiance. And what's allegiance? Allegiance, very simply, is obedience to the king. We see this in verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Lest the Lord, uh, say here, he says, uh, verse 11, serve the Lord with trembling and fear. Kiss the king. Lest he be angry with you and his anger flare up in a minute. And then he says, at the end of verse 12, he said, blessed are those who take their refuge in him. Refuge only happens because of one thing. Refuge happens because I say to someone else, you're the authority and I'm going to do it your way. And now I'm safe. I, I experienced this with one of my kids recently. My child was having trouble obeying and I had to bring them back into line. And to bring them back into line, their life had to become increasingly more uncomfortable for them. And they didn't like it. And they didn't like me. But as, as the father, I was looking at my child and saying, what I see is my child pushing against me, seeing me as the problem. And all I want, all I want is for my child to look at me and say, Daddy, I don't like this, and I want you to fix it. I need you to help me in this. My child does that. That's humility. That's surrender. That's obedience. And that's what God is looking for. So that's Psalm 2. But here's what we see. Blessed are all those who put their hope in him. The nations and the kings rage together. What we have here is a picture of humanity across time and across space. People that look different, that sound different, coming together to say, I don't like the way God's doing it, so we're going to do it our own way. The problem is this, the true God ought to be, should be, must be, will be worshipped by all people. Again, in, in our American mentality, this seems rather obnoxious. How can anyone demand to be worshipped by all people? How can anyone lay claim to that? Even if they can lay claim to it legitimately, they have no right to claim it over me. I'm, I don't want to step on toes. There's going to be some, some toe-stepping today. This isn't it, though. This is just in the grain of who we are. This, this we can say, yeah, I meant to, because we know it's true. We know it's true of us. It's so ingrained in us, though, that we, we recognize the problem, and many times we don't even know what to do with it. Here's one of the things that we need to see as Americans, okay? When God, Yahweh, and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon agree on something, typically you can take it to the bank and say, that's true. 
Here's King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, verses 2, 7, and 29. King Nebuchadnezzar has built his idol. 90-foot-tall idol. He said, this is God. And he, in verses 2 and 7, he calls everyone. And the words that are used here in both the Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint are the same words that we use in the New Testament for people groups. What King Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, all people groups, by my decree, must come, and when you hear the sound of the music, all people groups, all tribes, all nations, all languages, all socioeconomic levels, all educational levels, must bow down and worship the idol. Because if they don't, it's rebellion. See the connection? The true God deserves to be worshipped by all men. And it wasn't until we threw off the monarchy that we lost sight of that, incidentally. What we, what, we, what we have to see here, what we see from Daniel, is that rebellion against the king is always, always idolatry. The reason is that life ultimately comes down to worship. Remember what the sin of Satan was? Pride. Exalting himself. He wanted people to worship him instead of worshiping God. He even brought that to Jesus in the temptation. Bow down to me. I'll give you all these things. When Paul is talking to the elders in the church, and Timothy and Titus in particular, he says, when you see men and, and you're considering them for the eldership, for the deaconhood, look at this. They should not have pride. Because if they have pride, they're going to fall prey to the same thing that Satan fell to. In this case... Satan, Nebuchadnezzar, and God all kind of agree on the same thing. There is one person that deserves to be worshipped by everyone. The question is, are you going to choose the right one? The true king. Anything short is idolatry. So that's, that's Psalm chapter 2. So the question here now becomes, was it God's plan all along for all men to be worshipped, to worship his son? Uh, you know, was, it, was, this, was this something that God came up with a long time ago, or was this kind of a midstream revision? Did he adjust here, seeing things that you know, weren't quite going to plan, and he made some adjustments? Well, let's look at that. The pre-Abrahamic history here, going back from Genesis 1 through 12, roughly, is this. God creates the world. Sin comes in, there's the fall, all of a sudden there's banishment from the tree of life, kicked out of the garden, there's murder, there's a flood. At the flood, Noah and his family come through. There's a genealogy that follows, it shows where all the people groups in the world came from. Immediately after the, the flood comes Babel, God confuses the languages and sends them out. And then God gives a little spoiler alert. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the end of 3, God says this in speaking to Abraham. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the first inextricably clear clue 
indicated, that God's giving, that even though he's calling Abraham and he's setting Abraham aside and he's setting the children of Israel aside, it's for a purpose, not for an inheritance. The inheritance is for all. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So how does the New Testament see this? Bobby, would you read for us Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9? Listen to this, would you please? The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You get that? He announced the gospel ahead of time. What's the gospel? Who does the gospel point to? What is Abraham's life pointing to? What is the purpose for God's blessing Abraham? What is it ultimately pointing to and driving to? Very specifically, that table right there. God announced the gospel to Abraham. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. That's awesome. That's, that's fantastic. Okay, so but but okay, so God said this. What does God think of this? Well, what God thinks of this is that it's not good enough for the rule of Christ to be limited by a people group. God says, in effect, it's not good. Bobby's gonna read for us Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Who's Isaiah talking to here? Who's this he that's God talking, that God's talking to? Isn't this one of the servant songs? Isn't this a servant of God? It is a, it's too small for you, God says. Just for Abraham? Just for Isaac and Jacob? For the, for the Levites and, and Judah, too small. It's too insignificant. It's not worth your time. I've got bigger plans. Jesus then reflects back on this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So, just to make sure, we're, you know, this is like reading comprehension back in elementary school. Who's going to put their trust in him? Nations. The tax collectors in Israel not the Levites, not the Jews. Who is he going to proclaim salvation to? The nations. There's a flow here, isn't there? So in the question we see, uh, actually, we're not even going to get to the question yet. We're now going to see how God did this, okay? If you see what I'm doing here, I'm looking at the Old Testament, I'm looking at the New Testament. We're going to do that again. We're calling this section the Great Inclusion. The Great Inclusion, we're going to read from Ezekiel chapter 47, and before you read this, Bob, we're going to read uh, verses 21 through 23 
I'm then going to have Bobby read a longer passage so that we can really understand what's going on here in chapter 47. But Bobby, would you start with 20, 21 through 23, please? You are to distribute this land among yourselves, according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the alien settles, there you are to give him his inheritance, declares the sovereign Lord. You see it? So here's, here's the history again, okay? Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land through Joshua. Moses tells them this is going to be the land allotment. This is the territory that your tribe, your family is going to have. Joshua distributes it to them all. Ezekiel comes around and messes the whole thing up. No, it's not just for you. The aliens, the immigrants, the refugees, and their children born in your land, they receive an inheritance in your inheritance. Wherever they're living in, whoever's territory they're living in, they receive an inheritance in that land. That's the context. We're going to see the fulfillment of this in a minute, but I want you to understand, in order to see the fulfillment, we really have to understand the flavor of what Ezekiel's saying here. So Bobby's going to read a couple verses that are, I would encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel chapter 47. It'll bless you. It's God's word. Uh, but we're going to pick out a couple verses here that are in verses 1 through 12 to give us a flavor so we can jump forward and see what the New Testament thinks of this. Thank you, Bobby. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish. Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh, so where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. that make you think of anything? Bobby, would you go ahead and jump over to Revelation 22 too? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Get it? Get it? That nations is the same nations that Jesus says go into all the world, making disciples out of every nation. 
people groups, not countries. But within those countries, there are groups of people that have a common ancestry, go back to a particular clan, have a particular language, a particular set of values, a particular culture. Every single one of them is going to receive the gospel. Every single one of them is going to be represented in heaven. The tree of life is going to be there for the healing of those nations, those nations that were fractured back when Cain killed his brother. It was fractured back when the flood destroyed all humanity. Then we have the story of Noah and his sons and Ham and Canaan become cursed because of the sin. And we have an abysmal story of how God's word was co-opted right here in order to justify slavery in our country. Brother has been fighting against brother for a long time. God says, my son is on the throne. I put him there. Kings of the world, rulers of the earth, be wise. Serve the Lord with trembling. I want to look very quickly here at uh, dealing with distinctions. Bearing in mind that when we deal with distinctions, we have two responses, either idolatry or worship. What are the things that distinguish us? What are the things that make us distinct? People look different than us. People talk different than us. They have a different relating style. They have different perspectives. They have a different view on politics. They have different culture, different way of relating. They eat different foods. They dress funny. These things separate us. They not only distinguish us one from another, but they draw lines between us. Lines that we then respect and then love. Protect with our lives and our words and our finances. What we ultimately say is, whatever the distinction is, you all must bow down to my preference on this issue. You must bow down to mine. That's how we can have peace. If you want world peace, everyone needs to bow down to everyone else. Then we'll have world peace. Therein lays the problem. But this is the problem of the heart. Each of us do this. We look at whatever we're doing, the way I dress, the way I talk, the food I like, the sports I like watching, the politics I like, the policies, the people, you name it. Whatever it is that you have an investment in a preference, in a style, whatever it is, our go-to is to say, and everyone else needs to bow the knee to this, because mine is right. Idolatry. Each of us do it. This is where I'm going to step on toes. All right? This is no longer theoretical, and I, I mean for this to not be theoretical. I mean every single person in this room right now does this form of idolatry. That's self foremost among us. It is not merely idolatry in a fanciful way. It is idolatry in that we stand against God Himself, whose Son He installed on the throne and said, Worship my Son. 
whenever I put my preference as a measuring line for anyone else's inclusion, I say, no, Jesus, you're not on that throne. My preference is, and they need to bow down to that. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I've got a 90-foot idol. If you don't bow down, I've got a hot furnace. I'll throw you in. So how did, uh, how did the Jews deal with this? Well, the Jews don't have a great track record here. The Jews took a very us versus them mentality. The Jews separated the world into Jew and Gentile. It wasn't the Romans or the Greeks that were like, you know what, there's the Jews over there, and the rest of us, we should just be, I don't know, Gentiles. How does Gentile sound to you? Do you like Gentiles? Let's go with Gentiles. It was the Jews. They're the ones that did this. It's us and it's them. We're the Jews. We're the people of God. We're the chosen race. They're the Gentiles. They're the pagans. The word ethne, from which we get the word ethnic, ethnicity, is the word that means peoples or people groups or nation. That's the Greek word. It can also be directly translated pagans. And that's how the Jews saw the world. There's us, and there's the heathen. There's the people of God, and there's the dirty people that like to eat children and eat dogs. How did the apostles deal with this? What did they do? Well, Acts chapter 10. Peter gets a dream. God sends him this dream. He says, I want you to get up and eat. And Peter's like, uh, there's pork. I can't eat that. And God says, I told you to eat. Immediately after this dream, Peter gets called away to Cornelius, where God has already poured the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem council, Peter stands up and says, look, God already gave them the Holy Spirit. He testified to the fact that he was bringing the Gentiles in by giving them the Holy Spirit before I got there. And yet Peter struggled with this. You recall your history. Paul stood up to Peter and said, hey, Papa, what you doing? You were eating pork over here with the Greeks. Now you're over there with the Jews, and you pretend like you don't know what bacon is. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? The apostles in Acts chapter 15, which is a crucial chapter, okay? This is where the church of Christ... Has to, head, has to deal with this issue head on. And what they do is they kick down the doors. They say, look, this is the way we've always understood it. God gave us the prophets and the law and the sacrament and the, and the uh, temple and all the, the, the purification laws. The Jews aren't, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they're not included in that. But God's doing something different. This is where Paul goes back and says, he pre-announced the gospel to Abraham. Paul's already able to recognize this is what God was doing all along. So they say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to tell them. You don't have to change anything. Just don't do really bad sins that mark you as being a part of the Greeks or part of the culture that you're a part of. The religious world that you live in says what you ought to do is eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, to eat flesh with blood in it as a religious service and to commit sexual immorality as a religious service. You can't do that. There's one God and you have to bow to him. 
You can't bow in these three ways. Aside from that, welcome to the family. And here's where we move to applying the word. We move to applying the word here because the question that we have to wrestle with as a people, as an individual, and as a church is how will we how will we deal with people who are distinct from us? Will we let idols stand? Will we demand that the people that aren't us bow down to these idols to become us? Whatever those idols are. Or will we tear down the idols in the high places? And will we take our place in the company of the redeemed? Those are the only two choices, brothers and sisters. You can be in the company of the redeemed, or you can try to be Nebuchadnezzar. Or Satan. Bow down to me, not God. Will you view the world? Will we view the world through a prism of us versus them? Or will we view the world through John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. When we consider our Christian brothers and sisters, will we allow finite temporal things to divide us, to distinguish us? Or will we tear down every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ and stand as one church with one head, regardless of what the music sounds like, what the liturgy feels like, or the translation that they're using, or the politics that they hold to, or even where they get it wrong? go with an aside, but I won't. Will you allow the world to be divided with lines drawn by someone else that you begin to respect and then love, to separate you from other people, to make the clean and the unclean, the untouchables and the in? Or will you go into all the world? Proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of every nation. Very, very briefly, just a word on counting the cost. We'll talk about this more in a couple weeks, and I don't want to get too far into this, but I think it's necessary here. How do we apply the word in light of the gospel? Here's how we do it. Jesus was the one installed as king on the throne. Jesus then stepped down from that throne, immigrated to this world, was crucified for our sins. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 18 through 22, Jesus has some words for us. Father, would you tell us what those are? On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. 
children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. All men will hate you because of me. Why do the kings plot a vain thing? Why do the rules of the world rage? All men will hate you because of me. On my account, you're going to be dragged before kings and nations to give witness to me. It's not a great plan of attack, brothers and sisters, but it is the one that Jesus promised us. And the thing that's going to stand in our way is if we view ourselves as somehow having an intrinsic right and others not. Either way, we will be hated. We will be dragged before those other nations. So we have Romans 8.32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how much more will he also, along with him, not give you everything that you need? Another way to understand that is to say, if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for you, how much more will he not spare the things that you hold dear? Or I hold dear. How much more will he not spare my son? Or me? There's good news. Father, would you read Romans 15, 7 through 9, and we will move to communion. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Jesus made a servant. Any Jews in the room today? Jews in the house? Jesus was made a servant so that you all could be here today. And he did it by giving up his life, his right to the throne. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. Pouring it out, he said, this is the new covenant, which is in my blood for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we stand before you, sons and daughters adopted by the King, by your grace and for your glory. We are here only on the account of your Son, and we wish, Father, to be changed that we might glorify him. Father, would you work in us now through your Holy Spirit? Show us the areas of our hearts, Father, where we have allowed idolatry to stand against your Son and break down those idols in our hearts, Father. Just as you crushed your Son, crush the things which we hold dear above your Son. Just as he laid down his life, teach us, Father, to lay down our lives in obedience to him that his name might be Jesus' name. We're going to take the bread and juice together in a minute to hold on to it.
Jesus, in the light of your glory, who can stand? Jesus, you are glorified by the Father. You returned from the grave and you ascended on high and sat down at the Father's right hand. You rule and reign in glory right now. You who came in humility and were crushed for our sake. Your glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Father, in light of the glory of your Son, we have set up idols in our hearts, in our minds, an affront to his kingdom. But because of your grace, Lord, your word comes and puts its finger into our heart. It says, give that to me. Walk in obedience to me and be my child. Receive the inheritance of your Father. All because your Son obeyed you, Lord. Father, it is our desire that we would obey you. It's our desire that you would find us faithful sons and daughters, just as Christ was faithful. Would you create in us, Lord, a heart of obedience, a heart of humility, that we might serve and honor you, our Father, and Christ our Lord. Take and be. Father, it is not by our own strength that we can do any of these things, but by the leading, powering of your Holy Spirit, as you Shed your love abroad in our hearts. Grant to us that we might see with eyes of the Spirit into the mysteries that you have made illuminated through your word and through the life of Christ. That we now know where we stand in redemptive history. We now know where we stand before you. We know that we stand as the redeemed of the Lord as those who have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, who will stand one day in His presence and proclaim with all the saints from throughout history, worthy is the Lamb. For you were slain, and with your blood you redeemed men out of every tongue and tribe and language and nation for God. And Father, at those words, the elders and the beasts around your throne will cast their crowns down on the ground and worship around your throne. Father, give us a heart and eyes that see that day and live today in light of that day. Because it was your Son whose blood was shed. Because he bowed down his life to death. No one else need bow down to my idol. Father, let me walk in the grace and the life of the, that was bought for me by the blood of your Son. Take and drink. And Father, may we worship with those who worship in spirit and in truth. May we stand before you blameless, without any shame because of the work 
that you've done, clothed in white, no longer clothed in fig leaves, but waving the palm branches. Father, cause our hearts to rejoice this morning and lead us in the work that you've called us to, that we might glorify you and spread your gospel to every land, every nation, every language, starting here at home, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, all those who surround us at work and at play, and spreading out to the ends of the earth, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. I apologize that we've gone late. Obviously, there was a lot. I hope you've been blessed. Would you stand with me and receive a benediction from the Lord? This comes out of Romans chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We already heard verses 7 through 9. Paul says to the Romans, who incidentally were Gentiles, May the God who gives endurance and strength according, I'm sorry, strength and encouragement, may he give you the spirit of unity and of love amongst all yourselves so that with one voice you may worship the Son of the Father who lives in Jesus' name, go in the peace of the Lord. As a reminder, there will be a meeting right over here, right now. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.